0: It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking hour with David Kermod in partnership with Club Onologique. the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Francis Malman, Patagonia's pioneering chef, who's put the power and poetry of fire and flames at the heart of his cooking, which places the onus on the experience of fine dining. We'll hear his story, what inspires him. And why you won't be seeing him offer a pairing menu anytime soon. Francis Malman was born in Argentina, but he learnt his craft in the kitchens of Paris. And it was a return to his roots, fusing his culinary prowess with his love of fire, that resulted in his signature style. With restaurants all over the world, he's more finely tuned to wine than most chefs, yet he doesn't go in for the likes of pairing menus that are seemingly so fashionable right now. The demands on his time are immense, yet he's devoted a decent chunk of it to being the special guest editor for the latest edition of Club Onologique, published this week, uh, where the themes of fire... Poetry, emotion, Argentine winemaking and underground drinks production are all explored, to name just a few. I caught up with him recently from his restaurant in Mendoza to welcome him to the drinking hour.
1: Thank you. Thank you
0: very much. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. I'm keen to start, before we talk about uh, Club Analogique and uh, guest editing the magazine, which um, I'm uh, really excited about, I I want to talk a bit about how you kind of got started. You grew up in Patagonia, that's right, isn't it?
1: Yes, I grew up in Bariloche. I was born in Buenos Aires, then lived for some years in Chicago in America, and, and then came to Patagonia when I was about uh, seven years old and, and I was sort of raised there. And I want to talk
0: about your love for wine and your connection with it shortly. But first of all, how did you develop an interest in cooking and particularly in cooking in the way that you have made your own?
1: Well, it's been a long path. I started cooking in Patagonia when I was very young. I think my first restaurant with a friend of mine, I opened when I was 19. And I did some recipes from my family then. And my friend was a good chef. And after that, I I realized that I really liked it. And I decided to move to France. And there I stayed for some years. And I worked in eight three-star restaurants. At the end of the 70s, eh, early 80s. And then I came back to Argentina. I worked as a chef in a restaurant, and that's where sort of my career started eh, more seriously. And then when I was 40, I received this prize in Paris called Le Grand Prix de l'Art de la Cuisine. It was quite a shock for me because, in a way, it's a prize that had been won for by all the chefs for whom I worked in France. And I was very happy, very honored. And next day I was happy and I was sad. I didn't know why. And I realized that I didn't have a language on my own. So I thought and I thought, I remember I traveled to Barcelona and I walked around the streets thinking what was going on. And I decided that I had to embrace uh, the tools of my youth and my childhood in Patagonia where fire was a very important part in our home because it was a house ruled by fires, chimneys, hot water, uh, the cooking stove, everything ran on fire. And slowly I started changing my restaurants and adding some gestures of fire, a grill, a plancha, a wood oven, and that uh, kept on growing. So this was 1995, 96. And then by 2009, I was completely mad about fire and my restaurants became fire-driven. It's interesting.
0: So you learnt your craft primarily in the great restaurants of Paris, where method is so extraordinary, so important. And then, in a sense, you kind of went back to your basics, back to your roots again, really.
1: Yeah, because I realised it was something that was really inside of me, that it was sort of nurtured inside of me since my childhood. And I, you know, I started looking into it and I started studying as well in the relation of fire with the natives of Patagonia. And you have to think that there's some traces traces of fires in pits in Patagonia that used for cooking that are eleven thousand years old. So I mixed up that with the with the fires of the gauchos, with the use of fires of all the immigrants that came to Argentina, mainly Spain and Italy, and all that went into this pot where I started Uh, creating, not creating, embracing techniques and uh, making them, to use them in a way that I I liked it uh, very, very much. There's something obviously
0: incredibly compelling, beguiling, magical about a fire, Uh, you know, whether it's a log fire at home in the Cotswolds for me, or whether it's uh, someone uh, with a, you know, a a huge barbecue in, you know, in Argentina, there's something incredibly compelling and evocative. You you talk quite a lot about emotion in food and drink, don't you?
1: I do. You know, fire is something that is in our collective memory. It's innate to us. It's in our bones before we were born, in a way, you know, you put a, a kid that lives in a city in front of a fire and, you know, he just can't stop looking at it as we all do grown ups, eh, old people, young people, and that's very important. And the beauty about cooking and fire and drinks is, is emotions. Emotions are very, very important. And that's the world I, I have chosen to give my life to, you know, to emotions. And I always say that I came into cooking eh, more at the beginning by the scene than by the food. I was attracted to the scene as a young kid going to these beautiful little restaurants with my parents. And I I was in love with the scene, with the tablecloth, with the flowers, with the candles, with the music, with the happiness of a restaurant. And I thought, I want to do this. But it wasn't that I was interested at the beginning in food. Late, that came later. My first draw was the scene, and it still is. I would say that for me, 60% of my restaurants, my events, is related to the scene and 40% to the food.
0: It's interesting. Uh, you talk about that in your editor's letter in the magazine, And it really is striking that the ambiance is as important as you say it is, because it would be easy to say it doesn't matter what a place looks like. You know, I've been in restaurants in Italy that are overlit, that are really harsh, and yet the food is absolutely sensational. What is it then about ambiance that makes it so important to that overall experience of fine dining?
1: Well, funny enough, I think there is a silence in the beauty of a scene of a restaurant. Even though it could be very loud, people talking, people laughing, the music, there's still this very big silence that takes our attention, and I think that's the biggest beauty of a restaurant. I think that all of us, several times, doing a dinner or a lunch in a restaurant, we just see things and we don't need the sound. And I think that's something that's very nurturing and very special. And that's something you will never forget.
0: Talking of things that you will never forget, you are speaking to me today from Mendoza. And I talked about staring into a fire and that uh, your magical effect of looking at flames. I think there is another really um, magical effect where you are right now, and that is looking at the Andes. I think you could look at those uh, those mountains and just stare. In fact, I do when I go there. I just stare at the mountains. Do you think there is a sort of a, a similar effect there, a similar kind of aura around where you are there in Mendoza at the moment?
1: Yes, Mendoza and Pat- Patagonia, all the Andes are incredible. One of the things I learned being a kid was the language of this geography, the language meaning the movement of the clouds, the rain, the snow, the rivers, the forests, um, the, the big storms. And that's something that you can't explain, you know. If you tell me, well, explain to me what is that geography, the language of that geography, and it's something that it takes a, a long time to learn and to understand but when i'm standing in front of the andes i can read everything that is happening you know all the climate it's constantly telling me things and that relation i have with the with the mountains is something very very pure unexplainable but very fulfilling
0: and how does your connection with wine because you have a you know a, a very keen interest a great knowledge of wine I have met very accomplished chefs such as yourself before who have not had a huge amount of interest in, in wine T- to be honest they've left that to someone else uh, in the restaurant for you they come as one don't they
1: yes I think that the the romance of of humans with wine is is immense it's something that is ancestral too it goes back back thousands of years and it's there's such a beauty of it and again there's such a silence in it i remember going to one of the great chateaus in france eh, like 30 years ago for lunch and we had most incredible wines and when i was asked to to sign the book when i left and i wrote um, thank you for the silence of your wine. And the winemaker looked at me and said, is that good? Cool? And I said, well, it's the best thing I can say. But it, is it silent? Yes, it, it, it just makes you silent. It's beautiful wine with nothing you can say. And, 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 that's, and there's something about that in the, in the English protocol, too, where you should not talk during lunch or dinner about the wines or about the food. And I love that. You know how English, they always serve uh, decanted wine, so you are you don't know what you're drinking. And I feel that's magic, you know. And then at the end, maybe you say, well, what a beautiful wine. It was certainly a Bordeaux, it was a Burgundy, or I don't know what. But uh, there is a silence in wine that I love. I love in life everything that makes you silent because... When you're silent, you're thinking. You, you, you have an interaction with what's happening that is, is very very strong.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. Uh, I'm a very noisy person. I talk a lot. Um, I make. I'm very loud. I make a lot of noise. I'm often told to be quiet. I'm often told I'm disrupting other people's meals. Actually, but I have been drawn to silence and it's a very rare thing as i say for me buy uh, a memorable dish that can be really very simple or a memorable wine that can be really not that expensive it is a, a it's it's a powerful um, thing that you're talking about there it's, it's back to that emotional connection isn't it
1: well and it's interesting because you talked about a wine that, that made made you silent and it was not too expensive and i think that's a beauty about wine too you know are you having dinner in a palace uh, with incredible art? Or maybe you're under a tree by a river and you're sipping on a on a, on a on a cup tin, a very simple wine, but you can be equally happy because at the end, it's the company. It's to whom are you talking? It's the wind, it's the sun. It's what you see around you, you know? You don't only need the most expensive lobster, caviar or cut of meat or the most incredible um, wine. You know, you can be happy with simple things too. And I think to be able to live in that world where you have contrasts of the very best and and the most simple things is very important to learn and to embrace.
0: Yeah, hear, hear. Tell me how your wine journey began because you've talked about how you got into into cooking and where you learnt your
1: craft. What about the wine side? Well, I think it really started in Paris when I was, like, 18. My first trip on my own to Paris, eh, or maybe 19, eh, I already had my restaurant in Patagonia, and I spent, like, a month walking around, and a friend of a friend invited me for dinner. I met him at the restaurant, and he ordered a sort of a nice bottle of wine. I can't remember what it was. And we had some wine, and by the end of dinner that night, the, the, you know, the bottle was almost full. And I said to him, so we didn't drink all the wine. And he said, no, you have to learn. You don't have to drink all the wine. Wine is a beautiful thing, and you enjoy it, and maybe you have a glass or two, or maybe you just have one, and that's perfectly well. That's how I started, because... That message he gave me made me think a lot about the treasure, the secret that a wine holds, and that you don't need to drink a whole bottle to understand it. You know, just with a glass of wine, I'm perfectly well with a glass of wine. I have wine at lunch and dinner every day, but I don't drink much. And, but, but I have this beautiful relation with that short glass of wine that I enjoy, and um, and I think uh, it's very beautiful. I'm bound to ask you at this point, which wines
0: you tend to enjoy the most?
1: Well, again, I think it, it has to do a lot with the day and with whom I am. I tend to choose a lot the wine because I work a lot and I'm always with friends or with someone who works with me or and in my restaurants, so it depends, you know. Sometimes I would choose a rosé, which is something that I don't enjoy that very much, or a, a, a very simple wine from L'Alsace maybe, a white wine or a, or a white a Chablis. It, it depends on, on what the table looks. I never have a plan, you know. If I invite people for dinner, if I have a guest, yes. If I'm not sitting with them, I choose the wines ahead. But if I'm going to sit with them, I look at them. I look at how they're dressed, how you know, how we all feel, and then decide on the wine. That's interesting because
0: there's perhaps um, a stereotype of a a globally uh, renowned chef that you would only really have, uh, you know, a glass of. Cristal or, a, you know, a, a, a lynch barge or, a, you know, whatever, you know, that you'd only be interested in the kind of finer stuff, the expensive stuff in life. Uh, but that's not true by the sounds of it.
1: Not at all. And I I really don't believe in, in harmony in wine. I don't like pairings. I really dislike them. I understand them. I can enjoy a steak with a Cabernet Sauvignon but I find it boring. I like contrast. I, have, I like to have clashes in my mouth when I eat, you know? I like to have a very good wine and something that battles with the wine, and, and I, that's what I love. So I think that I never sit down with thinking, God, the menu is this, we have to drink this and this and this. You know, I, I have a more free spirit on the choosing of wine than food. Yeah. Does
0: that mean that you're not a fan of pairing menus then? Because pairing menus seem to be kind of all the rage and have been for a, you know, a decade or so. Um,
1: are you not as keen on that concept? I really dislike them. I really dislike them. I feel like in a prison, you know? Why? Why? Why did they choose this wine for me? Because this guy thinks that it, it works well. What about me? What about what? How I feel today? What about my guests? What about the day I have? You no, know? no, I really don't like pairing
0: menus. And you talk uh, about this kind of dissonance uh, between um, a dish a- and a wine, which um, is, is certainly counterintuitive, countercultural, uh, possibly. Uh, just, just sort of, if you can, uh, give me a kind of example of something that that you might have that is kind of counterintuitive like that, a a pairing that isn't a pairing, if you like?
1: Well, I think about it two nights ago. I had the most delicious white sole, you know, a lingual, which is like a, a Dover sole, but a bigger one. And it was just cooked on the grill with a boiled potato and olive oil, salt and pepper, and I opened a bottle of Cos de you know, the, the Bordeaux wine. And mm. it was so delicious, you know, the, the, the juices of the fish with the wine. And there was a dissonance, and that I love, you know. Th- there's a dissonance, but at the same time, you enjoy both, you know. That's what I like about eating, you know. I'm not preaching that everybody should be like I am. But that's what I like, what I enjoy, and if I'm in command of a table, eh, and I have to choose a wine, I will, I will choose something that I like. I won't choose eh, what he likes, you know. Eh, I, I, I want to make a, a point about what I think and how I feel, and and, and the why of of the wine. How important are um,
0: Argentine wines um, to your? A repertoire. Um, obviously, you're talking to me from Mendoza now. You have restaurants in Mendoza, in uh, in Buenos Aires, and, and elsewhere in in Argentina. Um, do you have a kind of bias towards Argentine wines?
1: Well, I find that Argentine wines, as you know, are are very powerful. They're great, full of sun, very ripe, and sometimes I feel that they're they feel more like a like a juice than a wine, you know, because you drink it and you feel this friendliness with it. But that's it. And I, what I like in a wine is to, to have a sip of it and have that first encounter. And then as dinner goes on, I start feeling all these different aftertastes and gestures of the wine that I find extremely important. It's like, uh, so sometimes I quite, I'm quite, uh, not that I put on doubt, but I, I dislike sometimes these very young wines that we are doing, and they're very, very powerful. I, I find the other day I, I was in, in Patagonia with, with a, a dear friend of mine, a, a, one of the best winemakers in America, and, you know, what I'm going to serve this man who has, who drink, has drank everything. I I served during a week with him only very old wines from Argentina, from the 70s, 80s, 90s, nothing new. It was incredible. Obviously, I don't open those wines very often because I don't have too many, and the beauty of the gestures of those old Argentine wines were, were incredible. So it's an incredible moment, I find, in the in the wine, eh, I think that big changes are coming. That's what I feel. And the changes will be drawn by very young people who eh, are very knowledgeable about what they drink and they don't necessarily drink the wines we drink in, in our generation. And I think that's very interesting. It's very interesting to see how little the wineries are doing for these young people. They just say, ah, they're young. The, this new generation are holding hands all around the world eh, with a way of thinking, not only in wine, <clears throat> in everything. It's, it's like a Renaissance, I feel. You know, they're 16, 18, 20, but when they reach 30, they will be sort of governing the world and we have to pay attention, so I tell to all the winemakers I know, beware, look at them, talk to them, try to understand them, and try to start having something for them that will make that makes them happy uh, so that those are my thoughts What is
0: that something then in your opinion because Uh, You've identified a group there, an age group. You're not in that age group, clearly, and and neither am I. But what is it that they want that they're not getting currently, do you think?
1: Well, they certainly want organic, biodynamic wines. And it's a market that is growing a lot. They are ready to to drink an orange wine. Uh, They're ready to drink young wines that are done in small quantities. They, you know, I don't know, but then the winemakers say, well, let them grow up and you'll see that they will drink our Chateau. I think that it won't be the case. I think that there will be a huge pressure for change. That's my feeling. I have Mm. a daughter of 26 and 23, and when they come to my island, to spend some days with me, they arrive with their cases of wine. They don't drink my wines. And they say, Dad, you know, we've been raised with these beautiful wines with you, but nowadays we don't drink that anymore. If you don't mind, we're going to have this wine. So it's very interesting, you know, because their ambitions are different to us. Our ambition was, I, you know, when I was 30, I was thinking, well, when will come the time when I could have You know, first growths of Bordeaux twice a week at home or to drink. So it was an ambition to be able to reach that. And they don't have those ambitions. They have ambitions to make a better world. And that includes wine. And I think that's very strong. And it's coming.
0: Alistair Cooper, uh, Master of Wine, Um, he appears from time to time on on this podcast. He's a a marvellous man and an expert on uh, South American wines more more generally. He's written a piece for the uh, edition you've uh, guest edited, uh, talking about a a, a wine evolution rather than a revolution in Argentina, uh, looking at changes uh, to the way wines are made, the emergence of a lighter style, of Argentine wine, something I think is uh, actually arguably long overdue and, and, and very welcome. I, is that something that, uh, I'm assuming from what you've said, something that y- you really welcome too, that slightly lighter, fresher style?
1: Yes, yes, certainly. But I love as well a lighter wine that will age well. I, I love the, the gestures of, of aged wine. It's, it's so beautiful. So give me a bottle that I can from last year that I can drink today and it's fresh, it's light, it has uh, some nice things, I like that. But I love the idea to, to, to age wine and you still can age like wines, you know, and, and they become something very special. But as I said, yeah, the last weeks we drank all these bottles that had 30, 40 years and that at one time were very, very robust, and now they became something very light and elegant, and full of aftertastes and you know, layers and layers of of being in the bottle. Uh, so I love that. But you know, we we don't all have forty years to wait for wine. So I think that it, it's good that they this there's an evolution, as you said.
0: Do you, uh, in the restaurants that you own, try to? encourage sort of younger winemakers onto the wine list. I know there's a feature in 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 the current uh, issue of Club O about the sort of up-and-coming kind of young guns in South America uh, written by Amanda Barnes, uh, the uh, author of The uh, Wine Guide to South America. Uh, are you trying to sort of bring people on on your own list?
1: Yes, certainly. We, we promote them a lot. Every time I see a new one, as I saw in in a restaurant in Buenos Aires three days ago, I took note of a very beautiful wine I had, um, and it it will be in the list next week. So I I love all that, you know, and I love this this sort of talking between the, the old world and the new world of Argentina. And I think it's very important they merge, they talk, they discuss, and they both take notes of what they're doing and learn from them
0: talking of uh, learning from people there uh, are many people who now cook uh, over flames uh, and uh, with with fire who perhaps might not have done that 20 years ago um, do you think uh, you, you kind of in the early 90s when you were you know returning to your roots as we were saying with 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 fire um, do you think you kind of set a trend
1: I think we did, you know, especially after the, the Netflix show. Uh, I think that nowadays we have a, a recognized and respected voice in the world of cooking around the world. And it, that's lovely. And I'm very proud to see that many of the techniques we use uh, are used in many restaurants around the world. And people consult us and ask us. But um, I never had a plan for that. But I think that we do have a voice.
0: That Netflix show is Chef's Table, uh, of course. Um, and it is, uh, I, I would imagine, globally, the most noticed food show that there is, if you talk about you know, global appeal because of the way Netflix is um, is is uh, uh, penetrating the world. Um, has it had a sort of profound impact on, on your life and what you do?
1: Yes, certainly. It completely changed my work. It gave us uh, so many, many things. Um, that, And it's, it's really a confession about my life and my work and my family and how I live.
0: I guess when you started uh, developing your interest in food and, and then wine, I- I'm assuming you weren't sort of setting out to be famous per se. And yet, thanks to your success with the what you've done, but also to TV shows like uh, Chef's Table, um, you are very recognisable. Um, Is that something that you ever expected would happen in your life?
1: No, no, I didn't. But uh, when I was 25, a businessman who helped me start a restaurant told me, when you will be very old, you will be very famous for what you do. And, you know, I don't know what this man is saying. But uh, I think that in a way that came true. Uh, and, you know, fame is success and failure. Kipling said they were two imposters. You shouldn't believe on both of them. You know, success or failure are the same thing. You know, you you can fall from success, you can rise up from failure. And that's the beauty of life.
0: I was going to say, uh, uh, the chefs I know, many of them are quite actually quite shy And very, very focused on the food and really would not enjoy that they're happy in the kitchen, not in front even of customers sometimes. So I just wonder whether um, that sort of public profile has uh, has been something that has has, you know, uh, caused you any anxiety ever or do, do you kind of relish that? Are you happy? Are you a people person who's sort of out there with the with the crowds and liking that kind of profile?
1: no i like it you know for me the beauty about cooking is that it is related to everything to science to music to dancing to clothes it, the beauty about cooking is that it's it's life itself you know it's how we sit how we eat with friends with lovers with our children with family and it's it embraces everything and that's the beauty for me so to be out there and to be able to talk with people from different inclinations in life is is extremely interesting and very nourishing.
0: And you have set out to um, firmly attach restaurant properties to vineyards uh, to to bring food and wine very close, haven't you?
1: Yes. There are two things I like about that, that vineyards are never in the centre of a city you know, you're always in the countryside and I love that. So this idea of a guest having to travel a bit to see you into a beautiful place, uh, you create a very nice relation with that. And, um, and then, obviously, wine and food, uh, they, they live together, they always have and they always will so, you know, I think it's a good relation with the vineyard.
0: And in those restaurants... I was quite surprised to see doing my research homework that I assumed you were a meat man through and through. You know, again, it's a bit of a stereotype of uh, Argentine cuisine as well, I'm afraid, although, you know, it is the best place for steak in the world, I I happen to think. But I was quite surprised to see that you have quite a keen interest in veganism. You've actually even written about it, haven't you?
1: Yes, I did a book about it. Uh, Over the last 10 years, uh, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the very old past, we used to get people, you know, vegans, to shout to us when we were cooking with fires, like a lamb or something like that. But nowadays, in the last 10 years, I've been getting these beautiful messages of very young people saying, Chef, we love your work. We love what you do. By the way, we are vegan, but we still like what you do. And after receiving, you know, hundreds of messages like that, in social media, I thought, well, I owe these guys something, you know, and during the pandemic and before the pandemic, I started working on this vegetarian, vegan book that came out like eight months ago and I'm very happy with it and I think it has, it's part of the future of eating, you know, we have destroyed the oceans, you know, the the, the systems with, with all the meat and it's quite horrible what we're doing so, I think that it's, it's important to start to make a change. And how do you incorporate or integrate
0: your cooking methods that you have developed over many, many decades to cater for vegan dishes?
1: Well, you know, the most beautiful thing about fire is that as I grow older, I keep feeling that I am still learning more and more. And in the past, it was learning sort of more brutal things about fire. But nowadays, every year that goes by, I'm 67 now, everything I learn is smaller. It's more detailed about fire. And when you apply all those small details into vegetables and grains, the results are incredible. Because everybody thinks that cooking with fire is a manly I don't know why, but it's quite feminine, you know. Uh, you need a lot of intuition. You have to sit in a chair and look at the flame and understand what's happening and look at it and look at it and, and take note of the things you could do with the small gestures of fire, that they work very, very well with vegetables. So yeah, it, it's a new love affair in my life, vegetables and fire.
0: Yeah, well, it sounds really, I mean, I love vegetables and I love fire. So this is, this sounds great. And I know in the magazine, uh, there's a, a feature about cooking underground. Um, this is sort of linked to mezcal and how mezcal is. Uh, is made by the ancestral method, you know, uh, uh, underground, giving it its uh, smoky character. And uh, uh, this feature looks at the sort of parallels with food. And and that's the way that you've developed to cook your vegetables, isn't it?
1: Yes, we use that a lot. That technique in South America and Patagonia is called curanto. And there are traces of curantos that, as I said, are 11,000 years old. And They used to, the natives used to bury big animals to be cooked during 12 hours as they hunted and come back to a hot meal. But uh, we use it a lot for vegetables because it keeps the humidity of the vegetables and it gives this delicious smoky taste to it that I really, really like. Pumpkins, onions, eggplants, fennel, leeks, carrots, potatoes, they're delicious.
0: You uh, made me think there about the extent to which I can mention your age now because you've mentioned it already. Um, you're uh, 67 years old and yet it seems to me that you are still kind of uh, happy to learn about food and cooking and new ways of doing things.
1: Yes, certainly I am. As I said, you know, I sit in a chair when we do big events, I'm always there for 12, 14 hours, looking at the fire, looking at what's happening, how how the food is dripping, looking at the wind, and I'm I'm always thinking about what will be next. And obviously, there are always new ideas for meats and fishes and poultry, but as well a lot for vegetables. And I love vegetables, and they can become something very, very special. Using different techniques of fire.
0: It's sometimes uh, seems to me uh, that vegetables, which I, I I love all vegetables, and I it's, it, they are often the star part of a meal uh, for for me. Uh, and not I know it's not the case for everyone, but it's uh, definitely uh, for me. I, I I could happily, if I had to, live as a as a vegan or certainly as a vegetarian. I think. Um, do you think some chefs? Still regard you know vegetables as a sort of afterthought.
1: Well, it's still seen a bit as a garnish. I love the idea of vegetables being the the, the main guest of the plate, and then a little uh, lamb or a meat uh, being sort of the garnish. The other way round. Um, so you know, it, it just imagine you you buy a, a a bunch of of leeks, and you. The first thing I would do is open one lengthwise to 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 see how he is. You know the humidity. Uh, what are the colors inside? Is it is it hard or is it very very soft? And then decide how to cook it. And you know with the meat you can do the same thing too. But I I'm very interested nowadays in in, in vegetables. I really I really am and the respect for the product. It doesn't need much, you know, and it sounds as it's almost too easy to do, but the simpler something is in cooking is the most difficult thing to achieve because it requires a lot of attention and a pristine timing and, you know, all these details that will take that leap or that potato to a palace of grace that's really
0: interesting and absolutely chimes i think with the experience of of those listening to this who've had the simplest thing like a in-season asparagus which is obviously in season over here at the moment you know done in a really simple way absolutely sensational if we can um if to, to learn from you cooking over fire is really difficult i think as anyone who's tried it will attest um what advice would you give people? Clearly, they're not going to be a starred chef, but what advice would you give people uh, in their approach to cooking with, with flames and with fire?
1: Well, to learn, certainly the most important ingredient is patience. You know, yeah, in, in Italy, they say that when you do a risotto, those 16 minutes you're cooking it, you're constantly there looking at it, stirring it, looking what's happening and deciding, it's ready, let's go. Well, in cooking with fires, it's the same thing, but it's longer. So if you want to learn how to cook with fire, you have to be patient. You have to have a nice, comfortable chair to have this talk with the fire for hours. You know, When somebody says to me or a group of people, we want to hire you for a cooking lesson with fires, the first thing I, I do is a bonfire outside. I put 12 chairs around, everybody sits down, and I say, Well, now, you have to look at this fire for the next three hours. <laughs> and and by the end, please write me an essay of half a page of what you've seen. What happened? The flames, the charcoals, the ashes. Then, when it's almost gone, go with a little stick, move around it, see, look, feel the temperature. So that's the language of fire, is understanding it. It's understanding the many, many different heat the fire can give to you to cook very different things. And some, things, some techniques are good for one thing, some techniques are good for another. And, you know, it takes a long time to learn it, but you can learn and it kind of draws
0: us neatly back to the power of silence, doesn't it, actually? Because if you're going to be patient and you're going to sit and look at that uh, bonfire that you've lit, then, then frankly, uh, you'd be best off enjoying the silence as well, wouldn't you?
1: Yes. I worked with a chef when I was about 22 in France, near Lyon, in a town called Mionnet. His name was Alain Chapelle, and he wrote a beautiful book called La Cuisine, c'est beaucoup plus que des recettes. And in this book, he talks about the silence of cooking. That was the first time I heard about the silence of cooking. And his his kitchen was like a beautiful cathedral. There was there were smiles and things, but there I stu- I started to understand what the true silence of cooking is. Because you're chopping, but your mind is, you know somewhere else. It's it's very beautiful. Talking of beautiful, Club Anologique
0: is a famously very beautiful magazine, renowned for the quality of its uh, photography. Have, have you enjoyed being a, a guest editor?
1: I have very, very much. You know, it made me think a lot, question questioned myself. I've, I've worked with a team in, in, in this issue, and I had a lot of fun writing things, Right now, talking to you and, you know, giving you my thoughts about wine and food and life. Uh, So, yes, I find it's a very, very special and beautiful magazine.
0: Well, it's uh, a great uh, pleasure uh, to talk to you. I've enjoyed it enormously as well. And uh, uh, I'm sort of to to let listeners into a secret uh, we're talking just ahead of publication it's being printed at the moment so I haven't yet seen the magazine but I know what's in it and uh it's uh it sounds like a treat so thank you so much Francis for sharing your uh, your wisdom and your sort of philosophy with us and uh, congratulations um, uh, on your success, but also on uh, the magazine, too. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank
1: you. Thank you, David. It's been very nice talking to you. I like very much the questions. I think we travel through time and places, and that's important thing about life. It's full of colours. Thank you. Bless you. Thank you. The Drinking Hour with David
0: Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirit. Well, we round off, as always, with some IWSC medal winners. And Francis Malman is, of course, a collector of Armagnac, uh, hence the vertical tasting of it in the uh, new edition of Club O. So where better to start than a trophy winner in that category? Uh, this won 99 points. La Maison et version Francais. Uh, Domaine d'Espérance, 17-year-old Petit Lot Armagnac. Uh, the judges said this distinctive floral elegance with lifted notes of lavender and clear honey, intensely complex with long layers of crushed sultana leather and crunchy bar honeycomb, light columbard spice with honey hints and ripe red chilli on the dry soft leather finish. Sounds amazing from that uh, tasting note. Next. Another gold medal winning example, Bakhtar Spirits, 1973, Armagnac, so 50 years old. This won 98 points. The judges said this, zesty blood orange and Karani leather with raisins, dates and burnished oak, aromatic and rounded with expressive wood, tar concentrate and a perfect balance of chocolate dark vanilla honey and sugary soft spices on a long and satisfyingly chewy finish Domaine tariquet Plante de Grasse 18 ons. Armagnac was another gold medal winner this with 98 points as well the panel overseen by our good friend Joel Harrison a mousquetaire d'Armagnac uh, said this deep Amber with prune and Asian aromatics over zesty citrus, with hints of desiccated coconut and dried fruit. Rounded and ripe, fine oak tannins balance harmoniously with layered Chardonnay aromatics and delicate hints of smoky, Corton and nutmeg spice. So another gold here. This one with the uh, ninety-six points, uh, Domaine Taurique. Uh, Pure Folle Blanche, 25 ons Armagnac. Here's the uh, winning tasting note. Warmly elegant, showcasing citrus zest with Mirabelle and creme caramel complexity. Hints of fudge, nutmeg and leather balanced with elegantly drying oak. Deliciously Christmassy, with puckering tannic length on the unctuous finish. Another gold, 95 points this time. Marquis de Montesquieu. V.S.O.P. Armagnac uh, from uh, Société de Produits d'Armagnac, an expressive and delicately perfumed nose displaying lifted blossom, citrus and soft oak spice. Balanced oak complexity with white pepper, intense layers of dried apricot, dark honey and vanilla spice on a smoothly lingering aromatic finish. And talking of finishes, that's it for another edition of The Drinking Hour. Uh, Do check out the uh, latest edition of Club Analogique on newsstands, or you can uh, order a copy, um, guest edited by Francis Malman. Uh, My thanks to him for his time. I really enjoyed that chat. Uh, You can follow us at uh, Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. You'll find Club Analogique there too, and you'll find me, Mr Venusaurus. On Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Honologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.